Welcome to The Way Church. We're glad you're joining us for today's message. For sermon notes, service times, and more information, check us out online at thewaychurchva.com. Now let's join Pastor Matt Rothy with this week's message. Morality. The question of what is right and what is wrong, what is good and what is evil, that was what was at the heart of a twisted social experiment that we see in the classic film, The Dark Knight. The movie, which was first shown in 2008, uh, has the film's antagonist, the Joker, the mastermind criminal, orchestrate events in Gotham City where all of the citizens are forced to flee. They're forced to flee the city by getting on two massive cruise ships. But here's the tragic twist. The cruise ships, the boats, are packed with explosives. Even more sickening, even more manipulative, the Joker gives a detonator, buttons, a trigger, if you will, one to each boat. And the trigger on one boat detonates the explosives on the other and vice versa. It's the middle of the night. He tells them they have 30 minutes to decide who's going to blow up who. And if the time runs out and no one blows up anybody, well, then he'll blow up everybody. What do you do? There's one detail I should probably mention. On one boat are the good law-abiding citizens of Gotham City. And on the other boat are all of the criminals from the city. So now what do you do? What would you do if you're a good law-abiding citizen on that first boat? What would you do if you're a good law-abiding citizen who happens to be a guard on the second boat? What would you do? A better question, I suppose, is what should you do? Take a look, see what happens. The question of what is right and what is wrong isn't always easy to answer. It might be easy to sit in a classroom or sit in church and say this is right and this is wrong. But when you're in a situation to know why something's right and act accordingly, to know why something's wrong and do differently, what do you do? The mystery of morality has confused people for a long time. The question of morality has been answered a number of different ways. Ancient Greece, they had philosophers that gave their ideas about what morality is, and they disagreed. Socrates said that the moral life is a well-balanced life. Epicurus said a good life is the one that avoids pleasure, excuse me, pain in pursuit of pleasure. Fast forward to the 18th century, and you have philosophers. You have philosophers like Thomas Aquinas, who said that the natural law is what determines morality. Namely, that what is natural and right, this is good. So people have a natural desire to live, therefore murder is bad. People have a natural desire to grow and know more, therefore education's good whatever serves humanity the best. But today, philosophers will say, whoa, whoa, whoa. Who are you to get to decide that 
life revolves around humanity? What if humanity decides that we should cut down all the trees in the planet or dump all our waste into the ocean? Is that what's moral and right? Others, like Jeremy Bankin, said that the right thing to do is the thing that is good for the most people, whatever's right for the majority. But what happens when the majority wants to wipe out and kill the minority? Is that right? Others still have said that what is right is determined by what everybody else should do in any given situation. But even using the word should implies that there is a standard that everyone knows should be right. Morality, what's right, what's wrong, and more importantly, who gets to decide what morality is? That conundrum has brought people to a place in in our time in a postmodern, post-Christian society where we believe in something, most people believe in something called moral relativism. That is, that truth comes from outside. Excuse me, it doesn't come from outside. It comes from inside of us, not outside of us. And I can have my truth and you can have your truth. Adherents to this believe that you can say, you do you, and do whatever makes you happy as long as it doesn't keep me from living my truth. You go live your truth. It's the idea that there isn't one big truth that's imparted to everybody, but rather, here's the first fill in blank if you're following along, is that truth or morality is determined by each of us. Now, if all this philosophy is over your head, uh, maybe I can bring it back to something that's pretty easy to understand ice cream. If you, me, and someone else were to go down to Carl's ice cream and choose the best flavor, there's only three served there, I would choose strawberry. Strawberry, I think, is the best flavor because chocolate ice cream doesn't taste like chocolate and vanilla is, well, vanilla. But that is my subjective viewpoint. My viewpoint, not yours not the person who loves chocolate or the person who loves vanilla. That viewpoint is based on me, the subject, not the object that is ice cream. And therefore, that only applies to me. And that's the same for subjective morality. What someone thinks is right and what someone thinks is good only applies to them. Subjective morality or moral relativism means that each person's viewpoint is right. It's good. It is their own viewpoint. So which one is right? Well, think about this. Think about the implications and the logical conclusion that your truth is right and so is mine. Thinking deeply about the implications of this, the philosopher Richard Hawkins says this, Dawkins says this, that there is no evil and no good. Nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. You can't call something good and you can't call something evil. Think about the implications of that. You can call something neither right nor wrong, 
that means that things like terrorism, things like racism, things like genocide and rape, these things are just social conventions of what an individual in a time and place or a people in a time and place believe to be bad. They're not really right nor wrong. Are we really ready to say that a mother who lives a thoughtful, generous life is really no different than a kidnapper who lives a cruel, horrible, and selfish life. Is that what we're willing to say? What is right and what is wrong? Once upon a time, there was a king. There was a king who was known for his legendary cruelty. During his lifetime, he wrote a will, and part of his will was at the moment he took his last breath, there would be carried out in his kingdom a mass murder, a murder of his subjects because he knew he was hated and he only wanted that when he died, there was mourning. So that happened. But also during his lifetime, this king found out in his own backyard, right under his nose, another king was born. His reaction? He went out and he killed every baby boy under the age of two. I'm talking about King Herod. King Herod who doesn't show up on the Christmas cards and doesn't get a whole lot of press during the season of Epiphany. But right now we need to step back and take a look at King Herod. Because there is someone who is acting as though there is no source of truth. There is no bridle. There is no framework for justice. So he does what he wants. And he stopped at nothing to get what he wanted. In King Herod, we see an example of what happens when truth originates inside of us, when truth is not something that dictates how we live and something that comes from outside of us. We see King Herod go and kill. We see King Herod try to kill God. As the Russian author Dostoevsky said, he said, if God is dead, well, then everything is justifiable. If there is no God, if there is no giver of truth, if there's no standard of what is right, well, then everything is permissible. Each can do what he sees fit, even try to kill that God. And it's been done before, and people try it still. It's the reason why imperfect people shake with fear at the idea of a holy standard from a holy God. It's the reason why people even today live as though there is no truth giver. There is no one truth. Because holy, unholy, imperfect people can't stand the implications of that. And it's not just people. It's not just they and them outside of here. It's we who invent truth. It's we who invent truth to, well, satisfy what our itching ears want to hear. It's we who call sexual immorality right because we cling to the desire to 
satisfy ourselves. It's we who maintain our right to gossip and speak about someone else, even though we know what inflates us really brings someone down. It's we who do wrong. It's we who do objectively wrong things called sin. And sin doesn't discriminate. Sin objectively makes us all guilty. Romans chapter 3 tells us this. There is no difference. There is no difference whether you read yellow, black, or white, Democrat or Republican, churched or unchurched, Christian, atheist, or anything else. There is no difference. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Our sin makes us immoral. Our sin makes us allies with King Herod. And yet that's why heaven burst open on that sheep-scattered hill. And that's why magi chased after a star that shone like the diamond in the sky. It's because of people who believed right things were wrong and wrong things were right that Jesus came. And it's a lovely scene, the Christmas scene, the one that Jesus was born into. But for a moment, just for a second, think about the fact that he was born into a world of babies crying and mothers mourning. He was born into a world of hate and harm. He was born into a world where people were living their own truth. And yet he calls himself the truth. He calls himself the great I am and he showed up and he did it to make all things right. He did it to establish all that is good, all that is right. But get this, more than establish what is good and what is true and what is right, Jesus came and he established all righteousness between you and God. He came and established all that is good between you and the great I am just talk about morality for a moment. Morality as the world talks about it and then as the Bible speaks about it. Because all the time people get caught up with the what, the what of morality, what is right and what is wrong. But that's not the Bible's primary concern. Oh, certainly it does share things of what you should and should not do. You should obey your parents. You should not murder and you should not steal. But that's not the Bible's primary purpose. The Bible is not solely concerned with the what of human morality, but the why of human morality. The why there is goodness and you are on the side of goodness. Why there is righteousness and you are on the side of of righteousness. This is the Bible's primary concern when it comes to the topic of morality. It's the why, why there is love and there is hate, why there is goodness and there, why there is bad. The passage we read before from Romans 3 says, there is no difference. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And yet, all are justified. That is, all are declared right. All are made righteous freely by grace, by the undeserved love through the redemption that came 
by Christ Jesus. That is the why behind all that is good and all that is evil. It is Jesus Christ who came. And just wrestle with the absurdity of that statement for a second. All have sinned. All have fallen short of God's glory. God wants us up here. Be holy as I, the Lord your God, am holy. And yet all of us are down here. All have sinned and fallen short. And yet, what does the babe in Bethlehem declare? You are loved. You are right. You are made righteous freely by the gift of God's love. That's the why behind morality. That's the biblical contribution to the topic of morality. That you have a savior who fulfilled all standards of morality. The idea of someone always doing what is objectively right. Check. He did it. The idea that you should do what everyone else should or would do in a situation. Check. He did it. The idea that you should do what would contribute to the best overall good of everybody. Check. He did that. But on top of that, he fulfilled even greater standards. Be holy because the Lord your God am holy. Check. Be perfect because I, the Lord your God, am perfect. Check. He did all of that. He fulfilled an entire perfectly moral life. And what did he get for it? Well, you know it was eternal It was separation. It was death from his God. There's nothing that could be more illogical than that. There's nothing that could be more unfair. Nothing that is more wrong than that. And yet he did it so you could live. He did it so that you could have his morality. His morality became your morality. His life became your life. His eternity became your eternity. That is the Bible's primary concern with the question of morality. What's right and what's wrong? First, the why. There is a Savior who is the great I am, who established truth and made everything right with you. That's why Jesus came into the world, and that's why morality matters. You might be asking, so if paradise is mine, if heaven is ours, then so what now? Does morality, the way I live right now, make any sort of difference? My friends, listen, the entire, entire point of Jesus living and dying for you was so that heaven would be yours and that absolute love would be shown to you. And now if there was not that, if there was not absolute love, there would not and there could not be absolute morality. There wouldn't be the what to what we do in our lives. But because of that, there is. It's found in God. In 1 John chapter 1, where our our lesson comes from this morning, where we'll read it in its entirety in a moment, we read this, that God is love. And this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, friends, 
since God so loved us, we ought to love one another. We love because he first loved us. The concept of moral philosophy can be complicated. It can be tricky to think through and understand the philosophies behind what's right and what's wrong and who gets to decide. But the beauty of the Bible's contribution to the, to the idea of morality is that it doesn't start first with the what, but it starts with the why. It starts first with the fact that you have been loved with an everlasting love by your Father in heaven. The what has all been met in Christ. And so the why for what we all do is set for our life. Let me put it this way. It is because of faith in Jesus Christ, in Christ who is now in you, that you and I get to go and live lives that are good good morally, more and more and more morally right, more and more fashioned in the image of our creator, in the image of God who is love. But it doesn't first start with us doing that. It doesn't first start with what we do, but it first starts with the why. And one, why we do what we do begins to resemble more and more of what Christ did well, then people notice. People see that. And that's actually been happening for a very long time. You know, there once was a time where Christianity was morally wrong, if you will. There was a time where Christian churches couldn't apply for 501c3 tax-exempt status. There was a time where we couldn't go out and put up sandwich boards that advertise that we're worshiping here at 10 a.m. on Sundays. There was times where Christians couldn't get together at coffee shops and openly read God's word and, and share it with their neighbor. There was a time where it was illegal. There was a time where if what we did today then, well, it would have resulted in imprisonment or death. And yet Christians grew. Christians grew in faith and Christians grew in popularity. The Christian religion eventually became the state religion of the empire that once tried to wipe it out. Why is this? Well, first of all, we know that the growth of the early New Testament Christian church is the result of none other than the Holy Spirit the word of God working in the hearts and the minds of people and the Lord God growing his church. And it's interesting though, to see how that happened. It's interesting to see how God used Christians. There's something unique about them. There's something very different about them. There's something that made everyone else around them stop and wonder why they did what they did. It was their morality. Reflecting on the way that non-Christians looked and talked about other Christians, the second century theologian and philosopher Tertullian said this, see, 
they say, they being non-Christians, see how they love one another. Imagine if that was the brand of Christians today. See how they love. Sounds an awful like what Jesus said. On the night he was betrayed, Jesus said to his disciples, he said, by this, everyone, you will, will know that you are my disciples. If you love one another. Imagine if that's what people said as they looked at us. See how they love one another. Look, it's no secret that in our, in our world today, the small t truth, your truth, my truth, their truth, his church truth, her truth, it divides. It polarizes us. People are placed in silos of, of what they do and what they think and what they believe and what they think is right and wrong and what I think you should do or not do. Look, I don't think we need another sermon about what to do or what we should not do. And I don't think the world does either. I think it maybe needs a reminder of why. Of why this group of people can go and show and tell what love looks like. What a group of people who have absolute morals are like because of love that is absolute. A group of people who can go and tell a story of what happens when love is shown to everyone. Amen. Amen.